welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Good morning, Covenant. Good to see you. If you're a guest with us, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. If you happen to come in a little bit late, I uh, noticed a little bit of it about this morning. Let me go ahead and point out again the blue cards that are in your seat back. And if you, this is your first time with us, man, we'd love if you just fill one of those out, put it in the offering plate when it passes later in the service. I promise we don't do high pressure. We don't do unannounced visits. We just like to have a connection to be able to know who you are, how you found us, ways that we can be helpful to you. And if you're new, as in just weeks old of the Covenant family or even a few months old, Covenant Women is tonight at 5 p.m. in this room. Ladies, you are more than welcome, and it's a great opportunity. Covenant men and Covenant women really are a great opportunity to get to know other people in a little bit smaller environment where there's some interaction, but there's not just four or five of you. There's not a real high risk of it getting weird and that sort of thing. It's game night tonight, so if you're in that sort of thing, into the end of that sort of thing, I hope that you'll be here for that. But today we are in 1 John chapter 2 as we continue a series that's going to carry us all the way through the first letter of John. I've been in ministry for a few decades now, and uh, I've often in that time had the honor of a young couple asking me, to officiate at their wedding. I don't know if it's because I'm older, grumpier, or whatever. I don't do as many of those as I used to. Uh, but and, and we have a lot of other pastors that do those kinds of things now as well. But it's still an honor and a joy. Uh, but there's something that I notice uh, sometimes in a younger couple. Generation doesn't matter. My generation did it. Boomers, y'all did it too. You just don't remember it, right? Uh, but younger, younger couples tend to conflate two words, marriage and wedding. Those are two completely different things. Now, they're inextricably related to each other, certainly, uh, but one of the probably more distinguished ways of, of uh, separating those words out, how do we distinguish between them, is to recognize that at a wedding, there's a lot of things that happen instantaneously that a marriage takes years to work out. Somebody had been married longer than 17 minutes, say amen. Yeah. When you get married... There's some stuff that starts happening versus a wedding in which some things instantaneously happen. Sometimes things happen like that. Sometimes there are things that take a long, long time. Some of you still haven't worked some of these stuff out even after years and years. And so when I say at the wedding ceremony at the conclusion, I hereby declare that you are husband and wife together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Instant, man, it's kind of scary to have that much power. Like, boom, like all kinds of stuff. Your status is the first thing that changes. You're no longer single. You are now married. Doesn't mean if you doesn't matter if you leave it the same way on your social media pages. You're still you are a legally married individual. There's a, a change in title. Have you noticed that? I mean, you get to the reception and you notice each of those partners no longer refers to the other as my fiancé, it's my husband, my wife, 
my spouse. If the bride decides to take her husband's last name, that too instantaneously changes. Their address instantaneously changes. This may come as a surprise. It's a separate sermon for maybe a separate day, Uh, but it bears repeating just as a general reminder that Christians who follow Jesus don't live together before they're married, okay? Uh, But after you get married, the address needs to change because you actually do need to start living with one another. Your tax status changes, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the good. And then there's these other things that, that really are not within the realm of the wedding. They're within the realm of the marriage, and they take a little bit of time. Um, how about schedules? Couple schedule, how are you going to work it? You get married like, like Amy and I did in July, and then, and then all of a sudden the holidays come on you, not three months later, and you're like, okay, is it, is it his family? Is it her family? Like, like, who do we visit first at Thanksgiving? Who do we visit first at Christmas? Like, we're, we've, we've, we've formed this new family unit, so that's the priority, but extended family is still important. So how do, we, how do we make all that work? Household routines. Who's going to do what? Who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to cut the grass? 30 years for me and Mrs. Rainey, this coming July, and we still don't know who matches the socks. We don't do it. There's this big old reusable grocery sack in the laundry room, slam full to the top of completely clean, completely separated socks, because Amy and me still staring one another down over that one. All right? They all do it too, honey. Don't worry. You know you do, right? There's that one thing, like you you. You still haven't quite figured that out yet. You're still staring one another down. Household routines. So at the wedding, you've got this radical shift in your identity. It's no longer a a, a mere me. It's a collective we that happens. But then you've got marriage, which ideally lasts until one of you is with Jesus. And that's the process of fully expressing all that stuff that you declared at the wedding and fully working out all of those things that have been declared about you at the wedding. And that takes a little while. One of the things we're going to learn this morning is that is also true of your Christian life and your fellowship with other believers in Jesus. Some things change instantly the moment you believe. If you put your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sin, you instantaneously ceased being an alien, a stranger, an enemy of God, and you instantaneously became a justified, fully righteous in his eyes, child of God. Isn't that good news? Like that happens immediately. But if you're anything at all like your pastor, the next few years are a little tough because now i got to work out that new identity. The identity is no less true, but I've got to work this out. And there are a lot of people that experience that, that instantaneous change and they are brand new creatures in Christ, but they still cuss a little, right? Or maybe a lot. Their people are brand new creatures in Christ, still trapped in substance abuse, still struggling with sexual immorality, still trying to honor God with the way they manage their money. I mean, some things happen the instant you believe, and other things through this process the Bible calls sanctification, it takes a while And one of the most excruciating things can be uh, that I'm struggling with something like that myself and simultaneously trying to live among other believers that also have those struggles. And so we've been in a series called One Another, moving verse by verse through 1 John, learning what this looks like, learning really from the very first message in the first four verses that this is not going to be an easy thing. 
But it, but it demonstrates, or at least we've already seen demonstrated for us in 1 John, the inseparable nature between our relationship with God and our, our horizontal relationships with each other. And we've already seen that our relationship with each other is one of those elements of our faith that doesn't come naturally or instantly, does it? It takes time. It takes effort. And that's true of a church relationship, back to marriage for just a minute, almost every occasion of marital discord that I have ever encountered as a pastor where I've been asked to step in and provide some counsel. The problem began with what I'll call an idealized view of marriage. This is not what I thought it would be. <laughs> really? This is not the person I thought I was marrying. Join the club. All right. That, what is that? Idealized? It's the fairy tale marriage. Y'all been watching way too many Disney movies. That is not how it works. Anybody married, again, longer than 17 minutes knows that ain't how it works, is it? You, you, don't, you don't have a successful marriage by looking for the fairy tale, but I'm going to tell you something else that ain't real either, and that's the fairy tale church. It does not exist. Well, it does exist, and it's not a fairy tale. It's real, but it's in the future, and you can find it described in Revelation 7, a really beautiful, spotless bride, but right now she's an ugly woman, and we got to live with her. Okay, so where we are in all of that, like we're just, we're learning to be in this community, okay, and, and you forget, man, this community is made up of sinners, all of whom, including all of the idealists among us, are struggling with things that take a while. So you're joining a community that involves people sinning against each other until we die. Hope that encourages you, right? D.L. Moody put it this way, it may not be an easy thing to live in sweet fellowship with all those in whom we come in contact, but that is what the grace of God is given us for. Here's what he means. The church is a learning community. Any of you ever have labs in college? You study the concept in the book, but then you got to go into a laboratory. Even at the seminary, we studied what it looked like to put sermons together, and then we went into preaching lab, fakest thing I've ever experienced in my life. You put this thing around your neck so that a camera tracks you. You put on a suit. You preach a sermon to like five people, but you're acting like you're preaching to 5,000. I'm telling you, it's the fakest thing ever, but I'm going to tell you what, what's good about it. What's good about it is afterwards you get to ex just this excruciating experience of watching yourself on film, having your professor critique everything. Imagine how bad I'd be if it weren't for that. Right? And you, you get a, what are you doing? You're learning, right? You, you, you don't just learn by reading, you learn by doing. The church is where you learn by doing. The church is the learning laboratory. The church is the learning community. You learn to forgive. You don't just read about it. You learn to repent. You don't just read about it. You learn to pursue justice and make things right when we do sin against each other. You learn to show deference to each other. You learn to put others before yourself. And today... We're going to be reminded that the power to do all of this, well, it doesn't come from us. So you can take some comfort in that. This won't be a message about another thing for you to do. This won't be another message about you trying harder. In fact, it begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 by reminding you that you have an advocate who does this on your behalf and mine. All right? And that, that's, that phrase is meant in a legal sense. You should actually visualize a courtroom where you stand as a defendant and in which 
Every accusation made against you is absolutely true. Put yourself there for just a minute. You're guilty. Everybody knows you're guilty. Everybody states you're guilty. That's right. But you've got somebody standing next to you. Here's the big idea. Christ, our advocate, declares us to be righteous. That's the gospel. And reconciled with the God that we sinned against. And that same advocacy is what brings us together as the body of Christ. So there are three practices that come out of this. Finding common ground, living common lives, measuring with the same result or measuring for the same result. Here's the thing. You're not going to try harder to get along with each other. It's not merely about being nice to each other. It's about applying the advocacy of Jesus that between you and your relationship with God, using that same advocacy in our relationships with each other. So let's take these in turn, starting with recognizing our common ground. Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, if you're like me, you're living in the 21st century, this sounds a little strange and, and, and maybe even a little creepy because you're, you're not in the same context as John is. This, this phrase, my little children. If I, if I were to address any of you in that way, even those of you, and there are many of you in front of me who are young enough that you could really be my children. Thank you for making me feel old today. But if I were to look at you and, and, and call you that, you'd probably find that a little bit weird. And then if I reminded you that, well, I'm old enough to be your parent, you might rightly say, but pastor, you're not. You're not my daddy. You're not my mama. And that's a little creepy. So you need to knock it off. Right? And so when you encounter a text like this, you go, okay, well, let, let's try to remember a couple of things here about the author. Number one is he's in his 80s. So he's considerably older than me. And also this is language that as an apostle, a representative of Jesus, he's borrowed from Jesus himself. John chapter 13, verse 33. And so in this situation, it's actually an appropriate term of endearment. And here's something else it does. It establishes the sort of authoritative relationship that John has that is needed to say what he says next. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And then given his earlier reference, you remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 7? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Contrasted with this statement, if you say you have fellowship with him and you walk about in darkness, you lie. So, so now he's saying, well, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm saying these things to you so that you will not live in that way, which tells us John's not looking for perfection in any of us. We should be comforted by that. The next, the next phrase, in fact, proves this. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Okay? If you walk in darkness, you lie to yourself. I'm writing what I'm about to write so that you will not live like that. John's trying to prevent... Uh, or at least protect his audience from what uh, David Allen calls Rasputin syndrome. Rasputin was the, the emperor, the confidant to the Empress of Alexandria, member of the Romanov family in Russia in the early 20th century. And he really was the point of origin for this teaching that, that most people would call hypergrace. He was reading Romans 5 one day and he read this phrase where sin abound, grace did there much more abound. And his conclusion was well, then that means I need to sin massively in order that God's grace might be glorified in me. And John's reminding us here that that's not a Christian teaching. 
when it comes to this idea about holiness. I mean, God's serious about that stuff, but he's also connecting it to this concept of fellowship in a way that points out way too many of us see that same philosophy in our relationship with other believers in Jesus. Relationship with fellow church members, relationship with other believers outside of this church. We, yeah, it's just me and Jesus. I don't need anybody else. I'll live however I want. I'll be, listen, if I want to be pouty, if I want to be non-responsive, if I want to be quarrelsome and argumentative, if I want to gaslight people, if I want to center everything around me, that is exactly what I will do. That's walking in darkness. That's walking in unrepentant sin. Minimizing, equivocating. What about ism? Every bit of that. And genuine followers of Jesus don't walk in unrepentant sin. But then there's something else followers of Jesus don't do. They don't walk alone. And so John goes on. If we sin, we have an advocate. Somebody to stand with me when I say, it's okay for me to admit that I was wrong. I don't have to play whataboutism. I don't have to gaslight. I don't have to pout. I don't have to make it all about me. I can bring all of the humility required to a relationship and be reconciled and not have to fear being taken advantage of because I have a Savior who stands right beside me in that moment. Did you hear what I'm saying? He stands right there, and he's an advocate. That's a word that just simply means competent legal counsel. Anybody ever needed a lawyer? Don't lift your hands. We really don't want to hear the stories right now. I did once, as it turns out. I was on a road trip with our daughter about a year ago. I got pulled over in southwest Virginia along 81. Apparently, I was doing 81 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone. And in that part of Virginia, that's actually technically reckless driving. So the, the, the officer was actually really, really gracious to me. By bumping that charge down, I still got a ticket. I get back home from that trip, and I, I'm telling this story to a friend of mine who's a member of this church, dear friend of mine, also happens to be a defense attorney, although not regrettably licensed in Virginia, so he really couldn't help me in that state. But he looked at me, looking out for me. He said, you, you really need to hire an attorney for that. And I'm like, an attorney? Dude, it's a speeding ticket, not a murder charge. Like, I don't need an attorney. I'm just going to write the check. He said, I don't think you need to write that check. I think you need to call and find a licensed attorney in that county, preferably somebody that lives in that town, knows that judge. I'm like, dude, that, even, that just sounds dirty to me. And, and besides, I'm guilty. And my defense attorney friend said, don't you ever say that again. <laughs> right? Don't you say that. And I said, okay. And then he explained to me, he said, look, it's not about being dirty. It's, it's in terms of how the system works. He said, over time, the savings you're going to accrue, Joel, from not having points added to your driver's license for that kind of a charge and the raise in your insurance rates that is most assuredly coming will far outweigh anything you're going to pay an attorney to do about 15 minutes worth of work. And so I took his advice, and I hired an attorney, and, and I talked to the guy on the phone, and by the way, if you ever have to do this, this is the first question they're going to ask you. you. So you got pulled over. Yeah. Were you nice to the officer? That's the first thing they want to know. Just throwing that out there for those of you that, you know, don't put covenant stickers on the back of your car because you got road rage issues. <laughs> Not throwing that in extra, okay? Yeah, I was, yeah he, I was nice. He was professional. It was great. It was always good. Well, it wasn't great. I got a speeding ticket, but you know, it was a good encounter as those kind of things go. Okay. I, didn't, I said, but wait a minute, I'm going to have a court date. Do I really have to drive? Nope, you don't have to drive. And I got nervous about this. I'm like, no, I'm looking at a court summons, dude. It says I'm supposed to be there. You don't have to be there 
I will be there for you. And then the weight started. Like I felt that come off of me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Y'all, I did not even have to show up. And then I get a letter the very next day saying that the charges had been dropped and I had been declared not guilty. And I told my defense attorney friend this story and I said, you know the most amazing thing about that? I actually did the thing that the judge said I didn't do. Like, how does that happen? And some of you, your mind's all awash right now and like, wait a minute, is Christianity just kind of a spiritualized version of a corrupt courtroom? No, no, it's not. And we know that because of what John says in verse 2. It's a, it, there's a word here. It's a funny word. Our guys in the tech booth identified that and said, that, propitiation, that's a funny word. It, it is a funny word. And I told them in the booth, guys, your moment's coming. I said, once I get to the pulpit, I will explain everything. Propitiation is a word that simply means to bear the wrath of another. That's what it means. And so the issue is not God sweeping stuff under the rug, God covering stuff up. The fact is that God has already dealt with your sins and mine and all of your relational nonsense and mine in the crucifixion of Jesus. The object of wrath has been punished already. The penalty has been paid already. And it's this payment that's offered to the whole world. Every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every, every single distinction, be it the language you speak or the culture of origin from which you come or the piece of geography that you own in this world or your understanding of the world, every bit of that meets on common ground at the foot of the cross of Jesus. We have been brought together by the same advocate. That's where reconciliation starts. Reinhold Niebuhr said the sinner who justifies himself does not know God as judge and does not, in his own mind at least, need Christ as Savior. One of the chief evidences of somebody who walks in darkness is a, just a refusal to live in fellowship with others because, you know what, that well, I'm just going to leave, I'm just going to do this. Listen, there are toxic and abusive situations you need to walk away from. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not denying that. What I am saying is in about 90 plus percent of church conflict, it's just a pride issue it's a lack of humility it's a sometimes it's tone deafness but whatever it is, it's just a refusal and when you walk away here's what you're saying like it or not you're saying yeah I'm better than them I'm better than them I love you if you're watching from home but if you're one of those people that's well, I don't need the church all those church people are hypocrites oh yeah you're saying you're better than them that's what you're saying I don't know maybe you are I don't know you probably never met you because you don't come to church. That's okay. Listen, look at me. Look at this grin. I'm messing with you, but God's word is serious about this. I'm better than them? Who says that? Somebody who walks in darkness says that. And we forget that God's called a fellowship. It's not just a call to get along, okay? It's not just a call to behave around each other, be nice to each other. It's called to recognize that we're here because we have the same advocate. We're here because there was a time and a place for all of us who are Christian where we were in God's courtroom and every accusation our accuser made against us was true, 1,000%. But there was a Savior standing next to us who advocated, who pleaded our case, who took our punishment. It's a call to recognize that. If you're Christian, 
What you hold in common is that your sins have been absorbed in that substitutionary death. And Jesus did not close the gap between you and God so that you could keep a chasm between yourself and other people. That's not why he did it. So we have to recognize our common ground. And third, secondly, we, we live our common lives. He goes on in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. This is the no-so test. I went to the mailbox a long time ago, but I remember pulling a, pulling a piece of mail out, tearing it open, because I just assumed it's in my box, it's mine. And I didn't look at the envelope. It was actually something addressed to my wife. But I didn't see that it was addressed to her before I recognized it wasn't my mail. Two lines into the letter, I instantaneously recognized this is not to me. You get the difference? You ever read something and went, wait a minute, that's not for me. All right, that, that's what, all right, this is First John. When people wonder and they ask me sometimes, Pastor, how do I know I have eternal life, that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? How do I know I'm saved? How Best medicine you can take for that kind of doubt is to read this entire letter in one sitting and ask one question is it written to me because if it's not you'll know and this is one of those places that the no-so test comes to bear right we've reached the part of john's letter that allows you to see whether it was written to you if you keep his commandments then you have come to know him if you keep his commandments this letter was written to you second corinthians 5 says if anyone is in christ he's a new creation all things have passed away all things have become new or as often as we say here at covenant disciples hear and obey are you a disciple of jesus well do you hear do you obey if the answer is yes then you're a disciple of jesus and to emphasize that claim John goes on in verse 4, whoever says, I know him but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. The word keep means to watch over, to hold, to reserve, to preserve, kind of like that blessed man we see in the, the very first psalm, Psalm 1, that says his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates it day and night. He doesn't just know it, he lives it, and if you don't do that, you're a liar. You might get all cleaned up, look good, sound good. Your theology might sound perfect. But if his commandments are not preserved, John says you're a counterfeit. Conversely, the love of God, verse 5 says, is perfected. It's finished. Now, here's the good news for those of you thinking, oh, my goodness. I just broke five of his commandments last week. <laughs> what am I going to do? This is not, I remember what I told you at the beginning, this is not a try harder kind of message. That word is in the passive voice to keep his commandments. He is perfected in you. The word is, a, you don't perfect the love of God in you. The love of God is perfected in you. You hear the difference in that? It means somebody else is doing it for you, which means sometimes it's going to take a little while. Some people ask me sometimes, Pastor, why, why does it take so long to get free from this or to get over that I, I really don't know the answer to that I, I can tell you that in, in my own life at the moment of my conversion that there was so much nonsense going on even that I was unaware of I, I do wonder sometimes if God had cleaned all that up in an instant if I would have survived it 
I mean, yeah, would it, would it, like, if God sanctifies someone as instantaneously as he justifies them, yanking that measure of sin out in that shortly, it might kill you. I don't know. I don't know. Are you saying I'm that bad? Yes. Yeah, we all are. We all are. He doesn't just know it. He lives it. And his love is perfected, completed within. And we can tell that's happening within when we see increased, consistent obedience without. Not perfect. You're still going to blow it. still going to cuss a little. But you know that you're his. In fact, later in chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to read this powerful phrase. I have written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. Did you know Christianity is the only faith that claims that? I love my Muslim friends. Some of them are probably watching right now, but the best my Muslim friends can give me is a hope. I kind of hope. I hope that I will make it. I hope that it's good enough. Same thing for my Jewish friends. Same thing for my Buddhist friends. Christianity says there is a way you can know sitting right there that you have eternal life. You can know. But we've got to tie all this together to see how this fits. Jesus tells us, the law and the prophets are all summarized in two statements, love God and love each other, right? You remember that? Love God, love each other. John says, if you see both of those things growing inside of you and increasingly manifest to other people, that's how you know. That's how you know you have eternal life. Not a salvation by works, not try harder, but a salvation that does work. And when these experiences are common to all of us as individuals, we'll see it happening in our relationships with each other, which is why, thirdly, we don't just have common ground or live common lives, but we're measuring as a body for a common result. Look at verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Genuine disciples have a life that increasingly mirrors faith, love, piety, obedience, self-sacrifice. Why? Because we see all of that in Jesus. We see all of that in him. And I, and I want you to see a connection here. This, this be good for some of you neatniks that think that it's all about your worldview or what you believe. Listen, none of that's unimportant. But the ten, I, notice since we began this letter together, every single measurable, tangible measuring stick for genuine faith so far has been behavioral. Have you noticed that? Every bit of it. So often we want to know, well, what does somebody believe? And listen, that's very important. John speaks to that as well. But it's not the tangible measuring. Yes, he said, you deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, you are not of God. Yeah, doctrine is important. Theology, going to teach for an hour and a half on it this afternoon. I wouldn't do that if I didn't think it was important. I'm going to do it next week, right before the Super Bowl. Believe me, I'd be heating up some wings instead of doing that if I didn't think theology was important. It is. But it's not the tangible measuring stick. We always say, well, this way or that way. Are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? When do you believe the rapture is going to take place? Man, all these, all these you know, kind of church council questions to determine if you're quote-unquote one of us. Meanwhile, John's saying, you're one of us if you treat your neighbor the way Jesus did. You're one of us if you live the way Jesus told you to live. That's how we know that you're one of us. That's the tangible measuring stick. It's not intellectual. It's not theological. It's ethical and relational. You can tell an awful lot about the legitimacy of somebody's faith 
by simply observing how they treat other people. All right? Don't show partiality to other people. One of the things I spent the last week and a couple of days at least in D.C. at the International Religious Freedom Summit with, with my older brother Bob Roberts, and one of the things I love about Bob is he just treats everybody the same. He could, bring, he could be with a Saudi prince or he could be with the guy that cleaned the toilet in his room the night before, and he treats them the same. And John just told us that this is how you know. When you see the image of God before you see the skin color, before you see the title, before you see the socioeconomic value of any of you, I've got a living, breathing image bearer of God in front of me, and you treat them, man, you can tell an awful lot about the measure of somebody's faith by that way. Whether you're walking in the same way that Jesus walked, the same Jesus that talked to a woman at a well that no other respectable Jewish man would have talked to and simultaneously even made time for the religious leaders that eventually killed him. Walk in the way that Jesus walked. And Jesus ultimately, speaking of that, those people that wanted to kill him, walked in the way of the cross. Now, that doesn't mean you've got to repeat his work of redemption. As one African-American preacher, a friend of mine said once, Jesus, listen, he, he, was an old, he was old enough to be my dad when I first got started in ministry. He said, let me tell you something, young preacher boy. Jesus already died for them people. You don't have to. That's a good reminder sometimes. All right? You have one Savior, one Messiah, and it ain't your pastor. Okay? And so there, there's that. You don't, and you don't have to do that either. You don't have to do that either. But it does mean you... you you're under the expectation to mirror the very faith and obedience and love and self-sacrifice that characterized that resolute path that we see Jesus walking in the Gospels all the way up to his own execution. Take up your cross and follow me. That's what he says. And somebody that truly abides in Christ also abides with Christ's people. I've been doing this for about three decades now, and it's, it's become easier for me to see patterns emerge. In fact, that, that's one of the things that I, I tried to, to get some help with during my sabbatical was I, you, get, you can see patterns and be wise and not be naive, but at the same time not become a cynic. Some of you may be in your work environment or even your extended family environment may fight that sometimes. Like I know how people can be. I want to love them, but I don't want to be a doormat. And yet, I, you know, they've been doing this so long. The, the repeated patterns of toxicity have been so bad. I can see it coming again. I know it's going to happen again. Oh, gosh, Lord, don't let me become a cynical. And some people cuss a little at that point. All right? I don't, I don't want to be that way. It's hard, but it, you can tell, it's somebody that comes from another church, for example, and I'm not, I don't mean they moved here from another area. I mean another church in town. And they spend a lot of time talking about how deeply hurt they were. And, which, and there is bona fide hurt that happens in churches. I don't want to deny that for a moment. But you start noticing that it, it happened in the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. I, and, I, and I start thinking to myself, I got some, I've got some extended relatives that that their their relationships with guys are like that. 
He's a Prince Charming, and then three week, three months later, he's a scum of the earth, and I don't know what I, why I ever gave him the time of day. And then two months after that, I found another Prince Charming, and then it starts all over again. And I just want to go, man, man, I love you, sister, but it, it, you ever think it might be you? Like, I'm just asking. Am I telling too much truth this morning? It's kind of quiet in here. But I hear how hurt, man, how horrible everything was, how unsatisfied, how unvalidated I was, how ignored I was. And again, don't, don't be a cynic. Listen and love, but go with your poker face. We got a window here. It's somewhere between six months and two years. And I don't know where on that trajectory it's going to be, but they're going to trash us exactly the way they trashed every other church that came before us. Listen, if I believed everything that has been told me in the last eight years about pretty much every pastor in this county, I would hate those men and women. I would. I would. I have learned not to believe it, or at least to turn the volume down by three or four notches. You just sort of, you get used to that, right? Because when those people, when they talk about those experiences, you know who's at the center of it? Yeah, what I wanted, what I didn't get, how I was let down. How I, and and then, then there's other people who even through legitimate, bona fide pain, working as a sinner along with other sinners, go, you know what, it's really not about me. It's about us. Ultimately, it's about him. And that, you see that reflected in a level of emotional maturity and genuine love for the body of Christ. You know what the difference between those two groups of people is? That second group, they're the ones who actually live as though Jesus is their advocate. They live like he's standing right beside them. It's the only way we get there together. It's not about trying harder. It's not, it's not about working to like some of you. What if I don't like some of you? What if you don't like me? What if you don't like each other? It's like, man, eternity is a long time, though. You're going to be in heaven together. What's this look like? What does this look like? I think one of the better examples is when you're a young parent, and it's been a while since we, Amy and I have been here, but if you've got little kids at home and you've ever had the experience of trying to teach them, like they're at a certain age now where they need to start learning how to clean up their own mess. Anybody been there? Okay. Now, here's what complicates matters. It's when you have more than one of those little suckers and they're close to the same age. Here's what you notice, all right? First thing you notice is y'all clean up that mess. That doesn't work, does it? And it doesn't work because although they need to learn, they haven't learned yet. And so they just, they don't know where to start. They don't know. And because they don't know where to start and the mess just stays Here's the second thing that happens, because they're little sinners. They tend to blame the mess on the other sibling. So you have ignorance and impotence and blame shifting until the parent steps in. And if you're really young and you've made this mistake, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to describe this in a minute. It's the wrong, I'll just tell you as a parent, it's the wrong scenario. Doesn't mean you failed as a parent, all right? Your kid ain't going to prison because you did this wrong when they were three, okay? Just, just breathe a little bit, right? But, but 
but a frustrated parent will step into the middle of that and say, y'all just go to your rooms, I'll take care of it. And that teaches no one anything. No one nothing. I almost use a double negative. I am from South Carolina. So here's, here's what, you know, you, know what, you know what a really wise parent does in that situation? They step into the middle of it and they start cleaning. And not 15 seconds after they're into it, they turn around and they look at the kids and they go, why y'all just standing there? Let's go. And they all clean it up together. And the kids learn something. And the parent, listen, that when the parent steps in and sets that example and then says to the kids, follow me, the arguments stop and the mess gets cleaned up. And guys, that's exactly how fellowship in the church gets better. Not by everybody being in it for themselves. Not by trying harder. If those are the approach, the, the, the result is going to be the same impotence and the same blame shifting that some of you all saw in your toddler kids fighting with their siblings. They don't know where to start. We often don't know where to start. you got a relationship right now, some of you, in your mind right now. You're like, yeah, i got nothing. I have no idea how to bring healing. But when the advocate steps in, when he steps in, and when we see his example, that, by the way, you can read every time you open a Bible to the Gospels. And John says, if we belong to him and we abide in him, we will, over time, learn a better way. But you got to know two things. Number one, when John said little children, that was aimed at you if you belong to Jesus and at me, and it was not an insult. It was just simply the unvarnished truth. Too often, we don't know where to start, do we? Here's the second thing you need to know. You have an advocate with the Father. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you stand right next to us, that you are not condescending when you call us little children. You are not insulting. But just like that wise parent, you're stepping into the middle of a mess. Maybe we created it. Maybe one of our spiritual siblings created it. More often than not, we, just, we all made it together. And we don't know quite how to clean it up. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come now and begin to work in us. And, Lord, we know these things. Sometimes they take time. Sometimes they take months. And they can be excruciating. But nothing is as excruciating as crucifixion. And so, Lord, may we never forget the cost involved in the advocacy that you brought to us. And may that common ground unite us as a body. And may that motivate us as individuals to be forever obedient to your voice. And may that overflow into a love for each other that we never thought possible. And I pray this prayer. Lord, believing that only you miraculously can answer it, but believing that you will in the name of our advocate Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. 
Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.